You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Wonderful to be with you this morning. Uh, If you are new or visiting, my name is Guy. Joy and privilege as always to serve as the pastor of this church, uh, a church that is committed to knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. So it's the early 90s and uh, I'm a teenager living in Melbourne when I hear the phone ringing. For those of you who are Gen Z, this is when phones were attached to the wall, one phone for the whole house. I pick it up, and who's on the other line? Jason. And who's Jason? Jason is my guitar teacher. Uh, I've been learn- had lessons for years. He's an amazing musician, toured with bands, uh, could slay the axe better than anyone I knew. And after a little bit of chit-chat, he says, Guy, after the summer break, when you come back, uh, you're going to notice a few changes. I think to myself, new, new time, maybe new fees, new curriculum. He says, Guy, I'm transitioning. I'm having a sex change. He says, do you know what that means? To which I say, stupidly, no, I don't know what that means. I knew exactly what he meant. There was something in the conversation that took me by surprise. And so for the next 10 minutes, uh, he shared with me how for all his life, he had felt like a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, The following week, uh, I returned to my guitar lessons. Uh, I'm holding my guitar uh, nervously, uh, and I walk on in. And and the change is is obvious. You know, where there once was a Metallica t-shirt and tight black jeans is now a, a, a floral dress. Where there was stubble and facial hair is now makeup, eyeshadow, painted nails. Where there was a bloke I once knew as Jason uh, is now a woman introduced as Jessica. Uh, What's curious about this moment is that I myself at this time was going through my own season of change. Uh, I hadn't grown up going to church, and it was actually in my teenage years that my life was turned upside down by Jesus. I'd turned away from this old life of getting plastered drunk and hooking up with chicks at parties to going to church and to praying and to, to reading my Bible. And so I have these very uh, fond memories, actually, um, like my year 12 instrumental music exam, <laughs> where Jessica accompanied me for the exam. Here I am, this new teenage young bloke with my WWJD wristband, uh, my Jesus t-shirt, my uh, wooden cross that I'd made myself, uh, accompanied by Jessica, this trans woman, and we're both rocking out to this medley of Gary Moore, Bach, and Led Zeppelin before this stiff board of examiners in suits probably had no idea what on earth was going on. Uh, in my early years of university, I stopped uh, guitar lessons, and so our, our paths uh, uh, you know, left. And uh, in fact, I hadn't seen Jessica for close to, I don't know, 20 years. That wasn't until two weeks ago. Uh, I found her number, and I gave her a call. 
And to my surprise, uh, she picks up. I say, you probably don't remember me. She does, although she says, I remember the 17-year-old you. (laughs) And we begin this great uh, conversation. And in this, I explain, you know what? I ended up planning a church. And I now lead a church. And as a community, we're thinking through these big topics, which include transgender rights. And I would just love the opportunity to hang out with you to talk and to really ask the questions that I never got to ask. Uh, in the weeks leading up to our um, coffee, uh, I'm reminded uh, of the rapid social, cultural, and political change that we've all experienced. Like it was only in oh, less than 10 years ago, 2014, that Time magazine had that cover story. First time in history, a cover story with a transgender actress. And there's that line there, we are at the transgender tipping point, right? Uh, and this was followed by a massive shift in, in Hollywood that really sought to put the spotlight on the trans community. We've also witnessed a big change uh, in education and how we are now teaching young people about identity and and, and what gender is. Uh, It was not that long ago that educators were introduced to the gingerbread person. Uh, The gingerbread person sought to uh, help students understand that gender is not fixed or binary, but instead it's it's a spectrum. Uh, You won't be surprised to hear that the gingerbread person came under sharp criticism. Uh, Activists took objection to the term physical sex and claimed the gingerbread person looked overly male. They then introduced the gender unicorn. Uh, You'll notice on the gender unicorn that they have uh, changed biological sex for sex assigned at birth. And you say, well, that's just a small little, little detail. No, it's actually very significant and, and marks a significant shift in how we understand uh, gender. We're now telling people that sex is not something you're born with, but is a social construct that's assigned to you at birth. So take me, for example, on the day of my birth, the argument goes that the doctors held me up, realized I had a penis and said, it's a boy. Right? And then that was legally documented on a, signature, on a certificate that marked me out as male. And then to really seal the deal, my parents called me Guy. <laughs> now, of course, the rise of transgenderism has not only turned the entertainment industry upside down, the corporate industry upside down, but it's shaking up the sport industry as well. Uh, It was just last month, you may know, that FINA, which is the governing body of international swimming, decided for the first time, they were the first international group, to ban transgender athletes from competing. Uh, Rugby Australia then followed suit, uh, and there's already discussions at the World uh, Athletics Association that they're going to introduce similar policies as well. And, of course, no surprise to say that there has been heated debate on both sides of the political spectrum. You'll know that our former PM, Scott Morrison, was heavily uh, criticised for the religious discrimination bill, which sought to protect religious communities uh, based on who they could hire and what they were allowed to teach. Uh, The recent election, however, uh, has fuelled some hope, more hope, for the transgender community. The Labor government 
has promised reforms when it comes to the Religious Discrimination Bill. Uh, they've committed now to recognising LGBTIQ plus people in the 2026 census, and they are uh, pumping significant resources uh, in the health sector, the community sector, uh, and committed to a series of campaigns to raise awareness uh, uh, across our land. All of which to say, Time magazine was spot on when they said that the, we are at the transgender tipping point. But... As I walk uh, to have coffee with my friend Jessica, I am reminded that, that what we're talking about today isn't purely cultural, social, or even political. Uh, it is, for many of us, uh, deeply personal. And Jessica shares with me uh, years of grappling with her identity and a sense of disorientation that she could not place. And when I asked her, like, how did you come to a discovery? She said, well, actually, it was through a series of reoccurring dreams. I was born a boy, and yet in my dreams, I'd have this one dream where I was at home and I was playing as a girl. And I'd have this same dream. And she realized that that was a struggle she didn't know what to do with. And she carried on with that struggle. Uh, she tells me that in her teen years and early adulthood, she... She threw herself into the music industry as a pleasant distraction, but it was the first thought in the morning, the final thought at night. I say, what was it like telling your parents? And she says, terrifying. Uh, she explains that her mum didn't talk to her, literally did not talk to her for months. Thankfully, she shares that um, when she made the transition, she received so much positivity and support, which she's felt ever since. Does this mean that Jessica is at the front line of the trans uh, activist movement? Not exactly. Uh, in fact, she actually confesses to me that she's appalled by the rise of cancel culture that has no opportunity for a difference of opinion. And she also explained to me that she is concerned by the number of young people who appear to be latching onto this uh, in what she described, funnily enough, as the punk rock of the 1960s. Uh, she explained, uh, tongue-in-cheek, but she explained that, you know, in the 60s, if you really wanted to piss off your parents, you'd wear big boots, dye your hair pink, and, you know, um, and, and get a, a, a nose ring. Today, if you want to piss off your parents, just come out and say you were trans, right? Now, now she says this tongue-in-cheek, uh, but she's just acknowledging that the world we are now living in has radically changed. And, and there are sharp edges, aren't there? Uh, on the political discourse that, that we are in. Uh, I had a thoroughly enjoyable, meaningful time <laughs> catching up with Jessica. I learned so much. I love deep and rich conversations with anyone. And, and, and we're, you know, we're keen to catch up again. And in many ways, I do hope that today that, that sets something of the, the tone and, and temperature of what we're seeking to do here. My hope today is not to give you the final closing word, but in many ways to, to begin a conversation in, in what is an incredibly important and complex issue for us all. So maybe we should start with a little bit of groundwork. Um, what does it mean to be transgender? Um, Dr. Mark Yarhouse, who's a clinical psychologist uh, in this, says transgender uh, is an umbrella term for many ways 
in which people experience, express, or live out a gender identity different from the gender identity corresponding to their birth sex. Uh, Within the umbrella would, of course, be a trans woman or a trans man, but also new gender identities such as uh, bi-gender, agender, pan-gender, or gender fluid. Uh, It's important to say uh, that it's only been in the early parts of the 20th century that uh, there's been a disconnection uh, between biological sex, sexuality, and gender identity. That's not to say that people haven't experienced gender dissonance uh, within their identity or expressed different genders, only to point out that there was a medical and political shift in how we now view identity. Uh, for example, in the DSM, which is the Bible for uh, you know, mental health and, and disorders, uh, they uh, included gender identity disorder as a medical condition. Uh, but in 2013, that was replaced with gender dysphoria, which sought to focus the diagnosis on the distress that some, that some transgender people experience rather than on the transgender individual themselves. Now, you may be wondering uh, what the contributing factors are when it comes to a person's experience of gender incongruence. Well, broadly speaking, uh, and there's a lot we can unpack here, but broadly speaking, there are two main schools of thought. Uh, Some believe that nature is the most significant contributing factor, and so one of the most uh, popular theories here is is the brain-sex theory that says uh, that it's a neurodevelopmental condition of the brain. Uh, Others argue, on the other side of things, that it's not a matter of nature, but instead nurture. Uh, leading psychologists like Dr. Money argue that gender is, is primarily the result of social conditioning. But we need to acknowledge at this point that, that research in this area is still relatively new. Uh, we could spend hours looking at the different debates and the, the, the gaps in those debates, but it's all relatively new and we need more time and more research to make any hard and fast conclusions here. Uh, Yahaus says it well. Uh, He says an appropriate amount of humility can be found in saying we don't know what causes gender dysphoria. Uh, Of course, it is important to acknowledge uh, the steep rise in transgenderism. One major study in the New York Times uh, reported that young people identifying as trans has nearly doubled in the past three years. Now, in trans-affirming circles, the most common explanation for that rise is social acceptance. Uh, Young people, they will say, now have the language and acceptance to explore their gender identities where previous generations felt constrained. A second and somewhat opposing explanation would describe that the rise of transgenderism transgenderism is a result of social pressure. That's not to say that there aren't people who struggle struggle with uh, gender incongruence, but perhaps there are many more young people today who perhaps feel a little bit lost, a little bit uncertain, a little bit anxious with life, looking for meaning, looking for hope, and they've now found that in the growing transgender movement. Uh, Helena uh, Kreshna, a young woman who transitioned to being a boy in her teens and has since detransitioned back to her biological sex, comments on the role social media had in her decision. 
She says, looking back, I, I don't think I would have considered seeing myself as a boy without these social aspects, especially if I hadn't joined these online communities. There was, a, literally, there was literally a period of a few weeks to a few months. I started as an ally, and then eventually I was starting to identify as transgender. Uh, this then leads us to an important question of care and support. What is the best and most loving way to support someone who believes that they have an identity that is different to their sex assigned at birth? Uh, once more, we need to say that this is a, a complex and significant question. This is saying that if you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. They all have, we all have our own stories and our, our own experience, our own context, and we need to consider that if we want to have a holistic view of care. That said, uh, broadly speaking, uh, there are three main responses. The most popular view today within our culture is affirmative therapy. This is where parents and community members are urged to mirror to the child the identity that they are expressing. It involves encouraging and affirming the child to make the transition, beginning first with a social transition, then a hormonal transition, before in time a physical uh, uh, transition to the gender which they feel best suits them. The second approach, which is now becoming highly criticised, is one that doctors call watch and wait. Watch and wait. Uh, this, this approach does seek to acknowledge the gender incongruence, um, but it also seeks to allow uh, time for the child to move through adolescence and early, child, uh, early, early adulthood before making any major decisions. Uh, those advocating for this view are likely to point out the fact that about 80 to 90% of children who express a different gender will come to identify with their bodily sex if natural development is allowed to proceed. The third path has been called uh, reparative therapy. Uh, this approach is based on the belief that our gender is a biological reality determined by our genes and our anatomy, and it seeks to align a person's mind to the body. Uh, I should say that based on recent legislation in Victoria, it's now against the law uh, for anyone to try and change or suppress someone's expressed gender identity or sexual orientation even if they ask for help. So this now means, in our state, it's now illegal for a parent to refuse a child's access to puberty blockers, for example. Uh, it's also illegal for, for a psychiatrist to say to their adult patient their gender identity is a mental illness. And if someone were to come to me or to come to you struggling with their gender asking for prayer that their mind would align with their body, legally, I am not allowed to pray with them toward that end. All of which to say, this has become an incredibly uh, difficult space to navigate. Not only because it shuts down the conversation 
uh, and the opportunity now to engage with a range of different perspectives, but because the implications for the individual making the transition are huge. Um, Carrie was a 15-year-old when she transitioned socially at 15. She started taking uh, hormones at 17 and had a double mastectomy at 20. Two years later, she detransitioned. This is what she says. The truth is, a lot of women don't feel like they have options. When you tell a therapist you have those kinds of feelings, they don't tell you it's okay to be butch, to be gender non-conforming, to not like men, to not like the way men treat you. They don't tell you there are other women who feel like they don't belong. They tell you about testosterone. Carrie adds, when I was on testosterone, I wanted to change my name. Once I changed my name, I wanted a mastectomy. Once I had a mastectomy, I wanted a hysterectomy and so on. Transition didn't really make my dysphoria better. It just kept moving the goalposts. And then she concludes, I'm a real live 22-year-old woman with a scarred chest and a broken voice and a five o'clock shadow because I couldn't face the idea of growing up to be a woman. That's my reality. So how are we to make sense of this? What might our response as a church be? Here are some observations that I, I trust will serve as a helpful framework in the discussion. And let me just encourage you to keep sending in your questions as we engage this topic. Uh, here are some closing observations. First, City on a Hill, we must affirm that all people are made in the image and likeness of God. As we heard in our Bible reading, Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I'm sure you're well aware that we're now living in a unique time in history where truth, meaning, and identity is something you create. Uh, I'm not what society says. I'm not what this politician says. I am who I say I am. How I feel. I decide. I determine who I am. Um, but this is where the Bible presents to us a countercultural and compelling vision. According to the Bible, we don't make our identity. We are first and foremost to see ourselves as created beings who are made by and for God. Um, in art, it's, it's a little bit, it, it's the difference between uh, Monet and Mr. Squiggle. Uh, anyone remember Mr. Squiggle? Right? So Mr. Squiggle, fun puppet. I think it's a puppet. Yeah, it's a puppet. <laughs> Uh, he's given a bunch of squiggles on the blackboard and he turns it upside down and it's his job to then create a picture by filling in the blanks. Uh, sometimes he draws a house, sometimes it's a car, sometimes it's a duck. And it's actually not too dissimilar to how our culture sees truth and identity today. You're presented with a few lines to work with. Uh, but our job is to create our own picture and make our own meaning, our own truth, our own purpose, our own identity. 
And you can see why that is very appealing, because I can create whatever I want to make. But it's also incredibly overwhelming. What if I get the picture wrong? What if the identity that I value today is not the identity that I'll value tomorrow? This is where Mr. Squiggle is very different to a Monet. You don't walk into an art gallery with a paintbrush to create your own Monet. No, when you see Madame Monet, the intended goal is to what? Recognize her beauty and stand in awe. And so it is with us. The first and fundamental response to our humanity, according to the Bible, is that we'd marvel at the beauty of God's good design. Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you're a woman who feels like a man or a man who feels like a woman, God says you're not an accident. You're not a product of society. You're made in the image of God. You're crowned with his glory. So in the end, for for Christians, the, the question is not, who does the world say I am? The question is not, who does society or some religious or political figure say I am? In the end, the question is not even, who do I say I am? The question is, who does God say that I am? And God says you are loved. God says you're made by him and you are made for him. And this is where Christians can and must lean into the rights of those who identify as transgender. The Christian philosopher uh, Edith Stein explains, whoever is near us and needing us must be our neighbor. The love of Christ knows no limits. It never ends. So if that means advocating for better health care and social support, If that means creating space for gender-inclusive bathrooms and policies that acknowledge a person's humanity and their inherent value, if that does mean thinking through complex questions around sport or the particular and unique struggles that the trans community face when it comes to healthcare and domestic violence and, and homelessness, then we as Christians should be on the front lines shining light and offering love. Because trans people are real people. They're not a political tool or an object for our debate. They're not a punchline in our comedy. They shouldn't be weaponized in our social commentary. Trans people are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity, value and respect. And in this, we also want to recognize that we are embodied beings. I love how the psalmist expresses this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. When God made you, he gifted you with a mind to think, a heart to feel and a body to move. Every part of you was knitted together by him. And recognizing that we are embodied creatures not only helps us value the fullness of humanity, but the significance of our gender. 
both its physiological components and the way we express and experience and live out our gender. Because God not only made humanity, but he made us male and female. Now, yes, there is profound sameness between the man and the woman, but there is also distinction. Will we always feel at home in our body? No. Will there be times where we might doubt or even despise our gender? Yes. But knowing we've been formed by a good God with inherent value and unique significance as men and women should suggest great caution when it comes to reordering what God has formed together. This is true uh, when it comes to affirming our biology, but it's also true when affirming our expression of that biology culturally. Whilst avoiding gender stereotypes are crucial here, we mustn't make the equal and opposite error of erasing our femininity or masculinity. Now, I do appreciate this is a democratic society where adults can uh, carve out their own purpose in their own way. But I don't believe we should be telling children that they can be whoever they want to be. Nor do I believe that we should have medical practitioners experimenting on young bodies. A person's gender identity is incredibly important. And I do feel that parents and children and community leaders do need the space to step back, work together and make informed decisions that take in a more holistic and Lord willing uh, healing process of care. And this is where our understanding of gender and our struggles with identity must be viewed not only in light of Genesis 1, but also in light of Genesis 3. Because as Christians, secondly, we must affirm that all people are living in a broken world. So in Genesis 3, we find Adam and Eve losing sight of God's goodness. Instead of trusting his word, they swallow a lie. And the Bible teaches that as they turn their back on God, they plunge themselves into a sea of chaos and confusion. They are plunged into a world marred by death, a death that not only disrupts our relationships that we were made to enjoy with God and with each other, but a death that we walk in on this side of heaven, this world is not as it should be. Life is not as it should be. The Bible is very clear. We are all marred spiritually. We are all marred relationally. And indeed, tragically, we are all marred physically. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, creation was subjected to futility. Creation was subjected to futility. What does that mean? It means that in a hospital ward, one mother will rejoice at the birth of a healthy baby girl, while another mother will be in tears as she discovers that her baby has a heart defect. As three teenage boys ride through the, uh, the, the, the streets singing with joy, another boy looks out the window trying to come to terms with a, uh, a, a crippling body. As a a wife 
uh, gets the call uh, that her husband's results are clear. Another answers the door to a police officer hearing that there's been a terrible accident. We live in a world of futility, a painful paradox. The world is beautiful. It's also broken. And this is why, Christian, you can and must find great unity with those who are struggling with questions of identity and gender. Because of all people, we know that on this side of heaven, none of us are at home in this body or this world. And so rather than pretending that everything is okay and acting like we've got it all together, we as God's people are to give voice to the full orchestra of human emotion. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to weep with those who weep. If you are struggling in your identity, struggling in your gender, struggling to find your place and your people, I want you to know that we are here with you and for you. We're not going to stand on a mountaintop pointing the finger down. We're here to enter the valley and share in the pain. We won't always get that right. We won't always understand or have the right words. But where there's isolation, we want to offer friendship. Where there's distress, we want to offer comfort. Where there's confusion, we want to offer light. Where there is despair, by the grace of God, we want to set our eyes on Jesus and see his hope. This leads to a third and and final point. That as Christians, our, our hope here is in Jesus, who is good news of great joy for all people. In the book of Acts, we discover that Philip, follower of Jesus, has received a revelation from God himself. And he's told to go to Gaza. And on his road there, as he's traveling, he sees a chariot coming his way. And inside is an Ethiopian man who's returning from Jerusalem. And the plot thickens, doesn't it, when we're told that the Ethiopian is also a eunuch. We're not told if he was a eunuch by birth or happened later in life, but Here's a guy wrestling with a lot of cost in his life. Keep in mind that in the ancient world, there was such an ideal in marriage and family and and children. Not only that, um, there are prohibitions in the Old Testament that restricted someone like that from entering into the presence of the temple. As the chariot approaches, Philip hears the eunuch reading Isaiah 53 and this ancient prophecy about God's sacrificial lamb who would come to heal and save the world. Do you understand what you're reading, asks Philip. Entering the chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch points to the text and says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture He told him the good news about Jesus. I love this. Here in his own chariot, the eunuch discovers that the one Isaiah was talking about, promising, prophesying, 
is Jesus. Why does Philip say that Jesus is good news for all people? Well, in part, Jesus is good news because we know that he understands our pain and our suffering. Jesus is good news because he entered into our flesh and suffered our brokenness. He knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to be an outcast. Jesus knows what it's like to have his identity questioned. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer anxiety and to wrestle with God's purpose and plan. He knows you. That's good news. But even more, it is good news because Jesus not only came to know you, he came to save and heal you. In Isaiah 53, it says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And note these words, with his wounds, with his wounds, you are healed. Whether you feel at home in your body or a long way from home, Jesus is here right now. And he says, come to me. I will carry your pain. I will mend your wounds. I will meet your life with a love that you have never known before. So what does the eunuch do? What should we all do in response to the offer of salvation that is in Jesus? Passing a river, the eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Commands the chariot to stop. They jump in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he is baptized there and then. What does this remind us all of? It reminds us that all of us who are in Christ are now one. One in his freedom. We're one in his eternal purpose. One in his deep and eternal love. One in his identity. Think of Paul, Galatians 3. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. Does this mean that our Christianity has erased our gender? No. But it does herald that in Christ we are gifted with a new identity that transcends. In him we are bound to a new hope. That one day we'll be at home with him. As a follower of Jesus, I know this world is not as it ought to be. But I also have confidence that it is not as it will always be. In Jesus, we look forward to an age that is to come. A time where suffering will give way to healing. Brokenness will give way to beauty. Despair will give way to hope. Rejection and fear It will give way to God's unending love. And so if you're a Christian here today, wondering how to love your LGBTIQ plus friend, family member, your neighbor, my hope is that you would see more than a label, more than a political category, more than a gender. Above all, you would see image bearers of God who were made for the life and love of Jesus. 
And if this is your journey, then I pray that you might hear God's voice today and receive Jesus as good news. I pray that you would know that you have a heavenly father who cares for you, who loves you, who made you, who longs that you would experience his life and love. Uh, Laura Perry, who once identified as a trans man, encountered Christ. After years of her own um, personal uh, struggle and rejection of God, she, she made the brave decision to entrust herself to Jesus. And she says this, For three days I sobbed and grieved with more pain and sorrow when I have, than I have ever felt before. I felt like I was dying, and I was. I was dying to my old life, to my flesh, to, to the identity I had created and believed in for so long. But the next morning, Jesus was about to show the world a resurrection from the dead. I went with my mum to her Bible study and I was surrounded by nearly a hundred women who were so filled with love and compassion and joy at seeing their prayers answered. I had never experienced this kind of love before. They loved me with a love deeper than I had ever had with a sexual partner. In that moment, my heart was radically transformed. The veil was finally completely lifted and I saw clearly for the first time in my life. My eyes have been opened to the truth and I live in a radical pursuit of holiness and living for the Lord Jesus, no matter what my feelings or inclinations might be. And for the first time in my life, I found true freedom in trusting Jesus and found my true identity in him and in who he created me to be. Let's pray. Father of all glory, love, and kindness, would you minister to our hearts and souls and bodies and minds with your good news? As we see Jesus, may we see that love, that light. Help us to know that light, to receive his love and help us to be that light and that love to this world that so desperately needs it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.